Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. to be back. hope everyone had a nice Thanksgiving. I wasn't suspended for the last few weeks, as some may have assumed. Uh, Barbara and I have found out over the last uh, few years that uh, that's a disservice to uh, the guests who are authors who compete with the election results. And, you know, we just didn't, didn't do a show on election day. Then the following week, we had kind of like a last-minute cancellation uh, because of the guests' uh, Wi-Fi in Ireland, um, while we try to reschedule John Hughes, you, you may want to check out his uh, latest publication, The Healing Practices of the Knights Templar and Hospitaller. Uh, it's a fascinating travelogue of his visits to Morocco, Marrakesh, the Island of Rhodes and uh, Krakow. Um, I don't know how much the listeners like the uh, Templar shows, and this one is, um, you know, John's book is about how the uh, Templars de- deposited the medical knowledge they learned from their stays in the Holy Land during the Crusades. And you know, they uh, they did you know, you know the places I just mentioned and you know left a legacy of their knowledge. It, it's really uh, a fascinating autobiography is um, one way to describe the book. Uh, re- really neat stuff. I highly recommend it. Um, you can contact our friends at Inner Traditions about it, and I hope um, I get the, some cell towers built 
in central Ireland. So uh, we, we can get John as uh, a guest, and he has a, another book coming out soon, too. So just keep an eye out for uh, John Hughes's uh, books on Amazon. Okay, so in, anyhow, uh, Wallace Wagner is our return guest tonight. Um you know, we plan on doing a two-hour show unless the Gulf Coast storms don't knock Barbara off the air. Uh, he was a guest with us a little over a year ago to discuss his uh, Crossing the Crevasse. He recently published his follow-up book, uh, Within Grasp. It's more about UFOs in the Bible and uh, the changes in perception after an experience. Um, And our guests also love those shows. Uh, You can learn more about Wallace by visiting his website, withingrasp.net. And I think it would make a great stocking stuffer. Hey, Wally, how you doing? Hello, Mark. How are you this evening? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Uh, Glad to have you uh, return to Nightlight Part 2, and you'll be, I guess, with Barbara, I think, uh, later this month, or uh, uh, next month, I think. Uh, I think it's the 28th of December. at, At the end of next month, okay. Yeah. Cool. Oh, and you know, that'll be another uh, interesting show. I think both of us interview so differently that um, both shows will not be the same. So, um, you know, for all the people who you know, have subscribed uh, since you appeared with us. Last year, uh, they may not have gotten to hear that show. Um, So let's review your sighting and what got gave you the um, what do you call it? you say you call it my epiphany, and I use that yeah. for the title of tonight's show. Um, so, you know, let's let's get into that a little bit about who you were uh, prior to your sighting, and you know, of course, the next hour and fifty some minutes, we'll learn about your changes. Sure thing. Um, well. For the audience, I grew up as, as a very conservative Methodist and Southern Baptist, um, and I do I do mean conservative. I mean to the point that the Earth is six thousand years old. Um, you believe everything in the Bible as it, as it's written. Uh, UFOs, if they exist, they're definitely from the devil, and. Uh, you know, being an author was not even in the cards for me. But in 2016, I was a mailman 
And in September of 2016, I had just made a delivery here in Bedford County, Virginia, to a lady who lives on Hayden's Bridge Road. And something told me to look up in the sky. I don't know whether it was something or some bitey or some connection or it was just a coincidence, but I stopped in the lady's front yard and looked up. And right over my head was what I call the white tic-tac. Um, it appeared as a solid white, glistening white object uh, with no nacelles, no wings, uh, no windows, nothing. It, it looked literally like the white tic-tac mint. And uh, I saw it for about three seconds. And then it was there no longer. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing it was about 1,500 feet over my head, something like that. Uh, might have been 2,000. I'm not real sure. I'm guessing, again, it's maybe 50 feet by 30 feet uh, for the size. And uh, no sound, no sound whatsoever. Uh, the sky was vivid blue, crystal clear day. And, I, you know, I, I kept asking myself, what happened to it? I mean, it, it, it disappeared, but did it take off so fast I couldn't see it? Or did it cloak? Or did it, you know, go into another dimension? And I'm pretty well satisfied that it cloaked. Um, and I just couldn't see it anymore. Of course, I had all the questions, you know, did I really see it? Was it the Goodyear blimp? Was it a weather balloon? You know, all that all that stuff. And this being 2016, I really didn't discuss it a whole lot. I, I told my wife and a few family members in my Sunday school class, I was teaching Sunday school at the time, Conservative Sunday school, I must say. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they took it pretty well. Uh, I'll just say they have some open minds in that in that class, and uh, it, it was a good experience. But, uh, you know, there again, I really didn't even mention it again until it came out. About a year and a half later, it's one of the, the uh, uh, videos that – Perhaps your audience has seen on on TV uh, that, that that showed the Bimmons carrier group and, and the fighters, and they're the ones that actually called it a tic tac. Uh, so so the videos out there, that's the exact same thing I saw. So I was vindicated. So now it's not you know taboo to talk about it. Um, as time went on, you know all the questions started developing in my mind, you know, are these crafts, you know, other other life forms? I had an open mind, but uh, are they mentioned in the Bible and, and all this and that? And it caused me to go back through the Bible and re-examine the entire Bible through a different lens. And Mark, when I did that, uh, I realized that these crafts are actually mentioned from Genesis all the way through Revelation. 
Uh, the Bible's full of them. And in one place, uh, in Second in, in Kings, they even are cloaked where somebody couldn't see them. So it, it's one of those things that, that, that you realize or that I realize that maybe all this stuff that we've been taught maybe just isn't quite true. So as time has gone on, I got to meet Reverend Michael Carter and a real, real gem of a person, I must say, the real deal. Mm-hmm. And we discussed what I saw and, and, and my book that I ended up writing, and he told me I was on this path. And uh, as it turns out, I realized I am on a path. I have left all the previous teachings and uh, what I had perceived as reality behind me and have moved forward outside all of this and uh, have found many, many, many new truths and realities for me. And Crossing the Crevice, my first book, was basically a recap of what I had found up to that point. Uh, It was written about two years ago, and actually my viewpoint has changed somewhat within that two years as I continue on this path. Within Grasp came out. Uh, about a month ago, and and uh, it's much more spiritual in nature. And in it, you will see where some of my uh, beliefs have actually changed since I wrote Crossing the Crevice. So that's pretty much where we're at now. Um, um, I'm much more spiritual in nature. Uh, I no longer am religious. I'm much more spiritual much more spiritual and a lot less religious. I don't subscribe to any particular denomination uh, anymore. Um, For me, the Bible is basically another book because I have studied so much of the background of the early church fathers, the background of the early church, and the Bible itself. I now realize that uh, it is definitely not the word and last word of who we perceive as God. So I'm beyond that. So I'll just go ahead and throw that out. Okay. Since we're officially into the uh, holiday season, uh, you know, let's look at one of the examples of, you know, your, change from uh you know a conservative uh having a conservative christian outlook to uh discussing the star of bethlehem um stopping above the manger in the past I would have believed and probably did believe that the star was a star, even though it moved in a fashion that stars do not move. But there again, you're taught that God was moving it. I no longer subscribe to that line of thought. Um, To me, anything that was a light 
up in the sky was a star mm-hmm. for the Hebrews. And stars do not move in that fashion. For me, and from what I have, have uh, gleaned, is, is the star was none other than a craft, without doubt. And that craft, of course, looked like a star, I guess, from, from a distance. But the, the giveaway is that it shot radiant light beams down and hovered above Jesus. And then, you know, you have the, the shepherds out in the field of Ruth. It hovered above them and shot the light down that shone around them in a circle, much like what happened with Paul on the Damascus Road. And then this voice comes out of this craft. A voice does not come out of a star. The voice always comes out of a craft, telling the shepherds what to do, don't be afraid and whatnot. So, you know, I have certainly gone from it being a star that God moved to now knowing that it was a craft with intelligent beings that are much more advanced than we are, you know, in, inside of it. It, it uh, just defies laws of physics. Sure, sure. I mean, there's lots of other places, too, that these mm-hmm. stars move in erratic uh, uh, fashions. Uh, one, of course, is uh, with Deborah and Barak in, in the book of uh, uh, Judges. Um, I think it's chapter 5, uh, if you have a Bible in your audience, it may be called the Song of Deborah and Barak, but if you go down to about verse 20, you'll see where it says the stars fought from heaven. From their paths, they fought against Sisera. The stars don't fight, and they don't move from their paths. And then in verse 23, a little further down, it says, Curse morose, said the angel of the Lord, utterly curse its inhabitants because they did not come to help the Lord. Well, in the past, Moroz was a location for me. Now, I pretty much fall in line with the Zohar, the the Talmud, and several rabbis in in believing that that Moroz was actually a planet when it's talking of its inhabitants. Most expositors today would would tell you that it's a location. It has to be a, a physical location, but nobody can agree where that location is or was. It makes much more sense to me now to know that it is a planet and that it is mentioned in the Zohar, and there are other rabbis out there that agree that it's a planet or a star. So, you know, that, that that's another place where my opinion has has changed, and it's changed a lot, I mean, all throughout the Bible. So that's just a little example. Um, you know, in your books, you cover uh, the uh, example from Barak, the uh, fighting stars. You get... Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, in ancient India, you get the Vimanas, um, 
uh, you, you know you also touch on the Battle of Nuremberg in 1561 in obviously Germany. Yeah, that happened late enough to where it's fairly well documented. Yeah, so uh, there you have three examples of uh, aerial battles before the Wright brothers invented the airplane. So how how do you explain that? Well, um, (laughs) I explain it by crafts. Crafts Mm -hmm. that have been coming to this world since perhaps its beginning. Crafts that have come to every culture on every continent. And the beings in these crafts were perceived as gods. I mean, whether, you know, Shiva or, or, or Vishnu or, or whomever, I mean, wherever you're at, these crafts came. And they didn't come to destroy. That, that's a key point. They, they came to, well, for lack of a better word, give us light. Enlighten us. Teach us. And this happened around the world in every culture. And it, it, it happened uh, uh, here. It's happened here. I mean, it's happened in Mexico. Uh, it's happened in Peru. It, it's happened everywhere. Uh, it, it just wasn't, you know, the Fertile Crescent area. It was around the world. And, 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 and these beings or entities um, have special powers. They're much more advanced than we are. So they were perceived as gods. And that, that's, that's my firm belief now. Okay. And, you know, speak, speaking of uh, they were seen as gods, you, you do mention the uh, classic 80s movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy. <laughs> that's, yep. that's a nice... Uh, lead into you know that that section <laughs> you know back uh, back then mark if i t- if i if i could travel back in time and take a book of matches with me even back let's say 1500 and i was able to create fire in my hand i would be deemed as a god i mean look what happened at paul he was bitten by a a, a venomous viper and he was perceived as a god because he didn't die. And uh, in within grasp, I actually mentioned uh, uh, a program that perhaps some of our listeners have uh, watched on TV in the past, the Black Sheep Squadron. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that that happened in an area where where it's something very much like the uh, the day the god the gods were crazy in that movie uh we we were dropping supplies down in those jungles and and the the natives uh, you know they were very very secluded they did not know what was happening but uh they knew the plane was dropping chocolate bars and goodies down and, and they found some of the crates and what happens is is the plane becomes venerated and the plane it becomes a god, and a cult is started, uh, venerating John, uh, what they call John Frum. And and you go back, and here's they they have made a plane out of sticks, 
And that's still going on today, in fact. There's still a cult there today on some of those islands. So so things we don't understand, if, if, if it goes too far out, you know, you just you, – your mind just can't comprehend it, so you just deem it as a god. That's human nature. And these beings that came in antiquity had had immense powers, and they were deemed as gods. But that's not God for me anymore. You know, as recently as two or three years ago, my God was still the God of the Bible, but it's not, you know, he's not anymore. Uh, For me, the God of the Bible was a local God, and perhaps we can, you know, get into that some. But uh, my God, not a God exists as spirit only and is full of truth and full of light. And, uh, for people that, you know, would disagree with me, I would say that's exactly how God is described in the New Testament as light, love, and spirit. Okay, but uh, uh, let's. The Old Testament is pretty much just, uh, even though you, you, know, you get passages like, um, you know, the four corners of the earth um that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's all encompassing of all people it's pretty much just a localized uh collection of stories and events but it, you know you do talk about your version or how you have come to view uh, God since your uh, Tic Tac sighting and and get into that in, uh, you know, around page uh, 50 uh, of within grasp. So what is some of the evidence that you have thought about that makes you think that the Old Testament God is really just um, a localized deity? Well, I've, I've done a lot of reading, maybe maybe more than what's good for me, but... <laughs> um, I'm familiar with that. And, and then again, looking at the Bible through a different lens, things come out to you that never came out before. And when you really start studying instead of reading, and there is a difference between the two, you will see things and understand things that were glossed over or not even mentioned uh, in Sunday school class or in in church and whatnot, and definitely not in most books. one, One of the things I had to find out on this path was was God really God? And I know that's a loaded question, uh, but for me, I just I just had to know. Uh, it seemed like the God of the Old Testament was 180 degrees different than the God of the New Testament. And then I realized that Jesus never called called Yahweh or Jehovah his Father. Never ever. He only mentioned 
Father or Abba. And then I realized that Jehovah was only mentioned in the King James. You have all these new later uh, translations, some of which are supposed to be better and more exact. You know, Jehovah is not mentioned at all. So going from there, I started, you know, doing a lot of studying and, and there's several lines of thought, but I put the two main ones uh, in my book. Uh, both are not extremely flattering. Uh, let's make that clear. But this is this is you know my journey and my epiphany. I, I don't want to impose you know, my beliefs on on anyone else. But what I have found out uh, and what resonates with me, Mark, is that. Yahweh was definitely a local God, a local Canaanite God. He may have been uh, a God of copper that was, that was venerated by the Kenites. You know, copper smelting was big back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a line of thought by you know some scholars that he was their God. He may have also been the god of weather and war of the Midianites and possibly the Shasu. Now the Shasu uh, were basically just simple cattle nomads in the Edom, Edom area, not to be confused with the Shem, Shemshu Hor of Egypt, two completely you know, different uh, uh, peoples. But the Shasu are actually mentioned in Egypt on some documents that Yahweh uh, was their God. And, uh, you know, I found that pretty interesting. So those are the two main uh, uh, avenues that, that Yah- this Yahweh uh, was a local God, a local God of Canaan. And Going a few steps further, I have come to realize that he had brothers and sisters, and I'm going to have to rattle for about 10 minutes, Mark, to, to explain well, all of this. Yeah, well, uh, get, getting to God's brothers and sisters is important to show your transformation. Well, it, it, the word Elohim, plural, with the I-M on the end, mm-hmm. it used to be in the Bible over 2,500 times. Today, as we sit here talking, it's in the Bible zero times, all taken out. It was Elohim who created the earth and all that's in it, plural. So... Another place where, you know, my belief has changed, let me insert this right now, is is several places you will read us or we. Mm-hmm. We go down or... or, or, or Made in our image. Thing. And, of course, if you're in Sunday school class, well, immediately that becomes, oh, well, that's the Trinity. That's God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. That's what us is. Well, for me, not any longer. Us is... A plethora of gods, Elohim, and 
Elohim is, is, I guess what you would say, all the gods that came to this planet. Elohim, or El, there's a little bit of confusion there, but El is probably the chief Canaanite god and was the chief Canaanite god. It was not Yahweh. It was El, E-L. Now, some would say that well, that's really Elohim or short for Elohim, and it may be, but nonetheless, it was not Yahweh. Yahweh was a local, just a local Canaanite god. El apparently had 70 children, and each of them were given a tract of land on this planet. And Yahweh got the tract as what's generally Israel today, uh, somewhere east of the Nile, going up through uh, Gaza and and what we call Israel, you know, Israel today, almost over to the river Euphrates. But that's what he was given. And this this ale is interesting. We we for you're not taught about L in Sunday school, or I right. haven't been in any in, in any Sunday school I've been in. Uh, you're taught about Jehovah or Yahweh, but it was L that that Jacob built an altar to. Uh, it was not Yahweh, and he called the altar Bethel, meaning the house of God. And if if you look around the Levada area, all kinds of cities and towns end or start with El, E-L. That's how prevalent this Canaanite god was, this major Canaanite god, the god of Canaan. His name was El. And again, there may be a secondary line of thought, Elohim, but in any case, my point is it's, it, it was not Yahweh. And uh, interesting thing is is Yahweh had a brother, and apparently his name was Baal. Now, I know that's going to throw some people off, but consider Job, and consider what happened in the Garden of Eden. Uh, uh, you know, in Job... This this Satan, or who, who some people want to call the devil, I'll get into that in a minute. But uh, he and this this God are talking pretty much casually, and pretty much on a dare. Uh, uh, Yahweh puts Job, uh, you know, in, in the middle of of uh, I guess an experiment to see whether or not he would remain faithful. And uh, he did. But it cost Job dearly, including his first 10 newborns, or 10 children. You know, he he was ended up getting replaced with double his cattle and belongings and 10 new children. But I find it exceedingly unfair that he lost his 10 original children and did not get those replaced. But nonetheless, this Baal and Yahweh were brothers. And there's a very good line of thought that says Baal ended up 
over time being morphed into Beelzebub, which ended up over time being morphed into Satan or interpreted as Satan. So I guess I'm here telling you that that there's a large part of part of me that now can accept that Yahweh and Baal were actually brothers. And if you read between the lines, uh, this Baal or Satan actually accuses Yahweh of building a fence around Job, just like Yahweh built a fence around the Garden of Eden. It had a parameter. And there were other people living outside the Garden of Eden. This is sometimes overlooked, but there was other population, another population on the on the earth at the time this Adam and Eve were supposedly created. And that's another show for another time, but you often or I often wonder now were they created or were they tweaked from perhaps existing uh, humans or, or or something else. But, you know, who did Cain marry? Someone outside the Garden of Eden. And this Satan shows up again in the Garden of Eden and, you know, causes Eve uh, to fall. And there's a part of me now that realizes, well, well wait a minute now. Yahweh was given land, and everyone else was given land. So the Garden of Eden must have been built somewhere on the land that Yahweh was given. And perhaps these other people lived on land that another god or a perceived god was given. And that all makes sense to me now. Um, The world was full of people at that time. It, It had to have happened that way. So... Getting back to the, to the God and Satan again, this El or Yahweh, there's conflicting information on it, had a wife. Yahweh always had a consort, but El possibly, El possibly had a wife as well, and her name was Ashua. Ashua was venerated greatly by the Hebrews. This is beyond doubt. So many uh, artifacts and artifices have been found supporting her in and around even the temple. This started around the time of of Solomon's son. She was venerated in and at the temple, and she was often depicted by a tree or a branch or perhaps a pole. Maybe you've heard of an Asherah pole. But uh, so we have male and female gods. And that's what Elohim is. It's not only male, but it's male and female. And and, and he, well, you just say that, uh, uh, give us a couple references that she is referenced as queen of heaven. Well, I can, she, she's mentioned as queen of heaven in, in Jeremiah, uh, for one mm. thing. But you have to understand, in, in, in the King James, she was removed altogether. Only recently in some of these new translations, like the, the new international version, the NIV, that many people subscribe to as being the most exact, she's now mentioned 40 times. And in the King, new King James, she's mentioned six times. 
So okay. big difference. You know, Jehovah's been removed, and Asherah has now been resurrected. So we we know for a fact that these gods were male and female, and this Yahweh had a consort or a wife, and El had a consort or a wife. There's two lines of thought there, but she played into both of those. And you, the Asherah sometimes is is, is considered to be a tree, uh, and uh, you might see an inscription if you found an old document as an Asherah tree or an Asherah pole. But uh, without doubt for me, that, that helped understand that these gods were plural and they were both male and female. And of course, we're getting female you know, preachers today in some of the denominations. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say. Uh, you know, you 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 uh, did interview a uh, lady uh, minister in, in your book. <clears throat> we'll uh, talk about her shortly. Okay. But um, and speaking of. All, all these gods. Uh, you, you do mention this Psalm eighty-two, and I, it's a really short uh, uh, one of the shorter psalms. And when Gary Wayne has been a guest with us, he's called that the counterfeit uh, council. Um, it, it, it's a really, uh, it, 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 it's like, you know, one of those things that uh, really sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, I didn't realize it until, uh, Gary mentioned it, but it, it seems at least two guests have, uh, written about it, um, it, it is very odd. It does sound like it's referencing multiple it, – here we are back to the multiple gods again. Well, definitely multiple gods. That's yeah. come out throughout the Old Testament. There's multiple, multiple gods. Yeah. So, uh, what, what, do you, what do you think of this Psalm 82? Well, uh, it's – I did put it in there because it sticks out like a sore thumb, just just like some other verses do now. It and, and and I get my information from people that are a lot smarter than I am. They have their PhDs and whatnot, but I see this as being Yahweh talking to his father El, wanting more power, more control. And he's asking uh, uh, for this power and this control, and it shows that he's jealous. He's a jealous God. And we we kind of sort of often overlook that, but it needs to be looked at realistically. He was a jealous God. 
I say was because he's not here now, John 14. But this jealousy, for me, plays right in the covenantness and everything else. It just goes to show you that, that this God was not omni-anything. Uh, uh, I mean, let, let me digress here and go okay. back to Exodus just a minute. Um, in Exodus 4, there's another one of these uh, bizarre uh, stories that's in the Bible that is, again, often overlooked and not mentioned because it does not fit the typical agenda. Uh, I'm going to set the stage for you. Uh, Moses, who had just... uh, led the people out of Egypt. Um, Zipporah, his wife, and their son are traveling, and they get tired, so they spend the night at an inn. And I'm um, reading into this. It's Exodus chapter 4. And this God, Yahweh, lands his craft. That's not in there like that, but because he gets out and starts walking, I know that a craft is involved. He's walking around the area where they're spending the night looking for Moses. He doesn't know where he is. He's having to look for him, and he's walking around looking for him. Why? Because he wants to murder him face to face. I can envision him knocking on a door at a motel room uh, and Zipporah answers the door and sees God face to face one of about 77 people or so that actually saw God and lived by the way <laughs> yeah you bring that up in cross yeah. uh, that, that's mean, another uh, you, you know, sample of your close reading makes you go back to look at the Bible. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, there it is. Right. Well, anyway, he knocks on the door, and, and Moses answers, and he always standing there, I'm here to kill, kill Moses. Is he here? And uh, due to Zipporah's quick thinking, she cuts off the foreskin of their son's penis and places it at uh, Moses' feet, and, and Yahweh changes his mind as, and does not kill Moses. So this is... This story has a lot to it. It's one of the places where this God changes his mind. It's, he did not know where Moses was. He had to walk to get to him. And then he's going to do what, you know, it's in the Ten Commandments not to do, murder him. None of this could have been done from the air or just bingo and it's done because he's God. It had to be walking on the earth trying to find Moses and then wanting to kill Moses and then changing his mind not to kill Moses. I mean, it's really bizarre. It's one of those things that if you're doing a study on the book of Exodus, it just may not be there. Just like Psalm 82. Uh, One of the last studies I did before I left the Methodist church was a complete study of, of psalms. Now, of course, every psalm 
was not mentioned, but of course, 82 was left out completely. It did not fit the agenda. So, you know, it, it it's one of those things that, that you have to look for, and then when you find it, it's aha. It's an aha moment. Um, it's a place where where this Yahweh is is wanting respect and is asking for it. And he's he's doing it amongst his brothers and sisters. So that's that's something to keep in mind. Uh, what I said that Yahweh had brothers and sisters is, you know, not to be taken lightly. I like your you really delve into the the Old and New Testament stories. Um, you're a very close reader. You, you know, provide a lot of contrast. You know, like what you said, where uh, you know what, uh, whatever uh, book, like De- Deuteronomy, where you know, it says you know you, you can't kill people, and he's show uh, God showing up to kill. Uh, Moses in that uh, story. Yeah, the he one he told. the one he just you know brought yeah. brought the people out of Egypt that he did supposedly did all the miracles for. Which, which, yeah. by the way, miracle is nothing but science that we don't understand. I, I don't believe in miracles the way I used to either, Mark. Uh, a miracle is is like somebody striking a match back in fifteen hundred. It's science we don't understand. That's that's all it is. But it. it you do talk uh, like with the exam the discrepancy that you just gave you know you give other other ones about um there were supposed to be seven animals on the ark and and like the next chapter it gets whittled down to two for no apparent reason. That's but because there, multiple people wrote the book of Genesis. Yeah. And it, most it, scholars, even in, in Israel today, would tell you that, that Moses did not write Genesis or, or the Torah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, the, the old school and the agenda says that he did, but there's too many, too many contradictions in Genesis, or else Moses was smoking some wacky weed. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, in one place, it's like there's a, this dichotomy. There, there's, yeah. it, it works in lineage too. I mean, um, in one place, two by two they went on the ark, and another place it's it's two and seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so which is it? But it can't yeah. be both. Yeah, and and yeah, you draw our attention to those facts. They're, they're you know. Uh, well, it's just like I say, the Bible's not quite what it's made out to be. And if you like being led, like being taught, then it's easy to believe what you're being taught and where you're being led. But if you 
want to do it on your own, you will find things that cause you to realize that you're being fed an agenda that's been in place since the early church. And I, I don't hold, you know, teachers or in, in, in ministers and people of faith uh, uh, in ill regard. I mean, that's that's what they've been taught and that's what they do. But but the truth is out there, and it's it's for me, it is no longer totally. I use the word totally in the Bible. There are certainly truths in the Bible, you know, without doubt. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it. A lot of it is, is for me, conflicting information, uh, and it has been modified so many times uh, by man that it's basically the work of man. Uh, I, I, there's no way I can believe that that is the work of my God. Uh, it may be, you know, uh, the work of a God for some of the listeners, but but uh, for me, it is not the work of my God, and that is without doubt. It's basically a history lesson uh, uh, with a Jewish and Greek flair to it. And Jerome had to work, you know, with both sides. It's almost like two books being, you know, bound into one book. I, I don't think they should be together. I think you should have the Old Testament in the book by itself and the New Testament in the book by itself. I mean, it's, for me, it's that different. Um, anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent there. Oh, it, it, it's, um, you know, it's what Nightlight's all about was, you know, looking at history and, you know, what people were thinking and believing I mean, at, at the time. Look, look at all the one-offs. I mean, this is a book many consider to be their foundation or their foundational belief. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have Melchizedek. We know nothing nothing of him. We know nothing of Jesus for most of his life. We know nothing, very little about uh, uh, Joseph, Jesus's father. We know a lot more about Joseph uh, in the Old Testament, you know, in Genesis, Genesis than we do of Joseph, Jesus's father. We, you know, all these people, so many of them, uh, you know, Hiram Abiff, the list just goes on and on. They're throwing out there, and we know nothing about them uh, uh, to, to add to the story. It, it, there's, I have a problem with that. Uh, I have a problem with, with the missing years of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so many, he, he did, so many other things. Yeah, he, he he disappeared longer than we know him. Sure. Yeah. You, know, uh, you know what was going on there. So it's, but you, and I, 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 and I have a problem. You know, going to basically any any church today, and uh, let me let me expound on that real fast. Is okay. I mean, you you read the Apostles' Creed. I mean, the the big Methodist church here in town does that every Sunday, and I just cringe because they they read the one that says Jesus, the only Son of God, and 
I know that not to be true from the Bible itself. I mean, from Genesis 6 to Job 1 to Galatians 3 to Hebrews 2 to Romans 8. I mean, we're all sons of God, the big God, not the God of Israel. Yahweh always kept saying he was the God of Israel. But I'm talking about the big God of the universe who I now subscribe to, the God of light, love, and spirit. Uh, we're all his children. And that, that is mentioned uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, and, and Jesus is a brother to me. I look at him as, as a brother and a master teacher who is much more advanced and evolved than I am. And I subscribe to Jesus' teaching. I, I am still a disciple of Jesus. Let's, let's get that out there now. Uh, he's everything to me. I want to be like him. Uh, I believe he's, his teachings were, were true and, and, and trustworthy. Uh, but he, for me, he came here to teach us. And uh, that was his main purpose uh, uh, for me, we, we, we all go to heaven when we die. And you, you look at Dismas on the cross beside him. Uh, uh, you know, I get the impression the guy was a lowlife, a thief that did nothing to benefit society. And he was not born again. He was not what we called saved. None of this. And, and just a few words. That, that, and, and he's in paradise with Christ. This, this tells me that, and from so much other information I've read, including the book of Enoch, that we all go to the third heaven uh, uh, when we die. And... Uh, I'm so convinced that that's, the, the the early church needed power to thrive and to grow. And what has been changed is to really say that Jesus was the only God. You have to be born again, meaning to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, uh, uh, you have to be saved. You have to pronounce it publicly. Uh, you have to be baptized. You have to do all these things, and then you'll make it to heaven, um, depending on which denomination you believe in. If you're Methodist, uh, it's not once saved, always saved, and that's that's something else. Everybody has their own uh, interpretation. Everybody claims to have the truth. But that truth comes in over 33,000 Protestant denominations. Each one's a little different than the other. But my point is that I am thoroughly convinced now, Mark, that that, that none of us die. And uh, we all go to the third heaven, which is what Paul mentioned uh, in Second Corinthians. And that's really... One of the reasons I put the Book of Enoch in the appendix and in, in within grasp, it's one of those books that uh, a lot of people wanted in, Origen and Clement of Alexandria and some others, but 
the original Jews did not want it in there because it made continual references to the Messiah. So it got axed uh, from the Bible, but it's uh, still in the Ethiopian Orthodox Bible to this day, and Mm -hmm. it's still available to read in many flavors. There's more than one book, by the way. Enoch wrote many books, but but the one I put in there is the one that's publicly available online for people that uh, want a free copy. It's in the back of this book. It it specifically describes the third heaven, which is mentioned in Second Corinthians. And I've been to many studies uh, on Revelation and and, and and what happens at death and on heaven. And it's been mentioned to me more than once that the third heaven is basically above the stratosphere, where above where the birds fly. I mean, that's the best some of these people can come up with when they're trying to teach you what the third heaven is. You really have to read the book of Enoch to know what the third heaven is. And, and of course, I'm sure uh, the people in the know back then were aware of, of what Enoch had written. Uh, we all go to the third heaven. And... Uh, I'll let that ride for right now. I'll let that sink in. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people think that uh, tonight's show is, uh, you know, a lot of heresy. Uh, you know, if Nightlight were around uh, during the Spanish Inquisition, we would already be in the Iron Maiden. <laughs> uh, but um, you, you, you with all the of uh, the challenges to the traditional <clears throat> interpretations of the Old and New Testament um, or testaments, uh, you, you still maintain. Uh, and a very active faith. Uh, Yes, I do. You you do write about your disciple Jesus, but you're you're also um, embracing of Hinduism, every other denomination or religion. So how do you see yourself with you know what seems to be kind of like a you know contradictory um outlook but uh, well that's a, that's a good question and I'll answer it this way we're still here in the past we've had all these gods flew in here on crafts. Now, I mean, Hermes flew. Uh, Solomon flew. The Elohim flew. Quasicodra flew. Ra, Vishnu, the Anunnaki, they all flew. Um, We're still here. They did not come to destroy. They came to teach. You look at the teachings of Buddha and Jesus, and they're very close. You look at uh, a lot of the other teachings from Zoroaster to, to, to Vishnu to, to um, well, what am I wanting to say? Um, 
Mohammed, early Mohammed. It's 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 very very close to what uh, Jesus taught. So I have done some studies on these other religions, and I find truth in them all. I find truth in Christianity. I find truth in in these other religions. Live your life with meaning. Treat your neighbor as yourself. Realize that love is what permeates the universe, and we are creatures of love and light. And, and and learn things that that aren't physical, and that that's really, I believe, where we have fallen short. Um, you know, some of the Far Eastern religions are are, are better at um, using their brain in ways that uh, we don't think of here or or, or don't do here. Uh, what what I mean by that is, let me use Paul as an, as an example. Um, Paul of the Bible, you know, he he was a tent maker. That was his line of work. And then, of course, you had and he was a persecutor of Christians. And then he had the Damascus Road experience, where this light course shown around him and he gets the voice from the sky again coming from a craft and he becomes an apostle what's often overlooked is this did not happen immediately this happened years after the disciples uh, uh, were or you know were, were picked and were in place but Paul did not become uh, an apostle immediately after that experience he went to Saudi Arabia for three years of training then came back to be an apostle now we don't know who trained him or exactly where he was trained but being that it's Saudi Arabia the first thing in my mind is well that's where Mount Sinai really is and that's the home of Elijah and Elisha. I just found that interesting. Some oppositors think today that maybe he was trained by none other than Jesus himself. What we know is that he had powers after that three years of training. Uh, He did not have those powers before. Uh, An example, he, he, he blinded a fellow by the name of Elimus just looked at him, and he went blind, saying he was going to go blind, and that's what happened. I mean, how did Paul get that power? Just from three years of training? In, in, and you think of Jesus as being a teacher. Everyone called him rabbi. Mary Magdalene to, mm-hmm. to Nicodemus to all the disciples to the Sanhedrin to... I mean, everybody called him rabbi. He, he was known as a teacher. Uh, I, I, I try to encompass what he taught. And the only thing I can see that falls in line with Paul would maybe be Peter. Did Peter really get what 
Jesus was trying to teach us. Today we focus on our heart, and I think Jesus was focusing on both our heart and our brain, that we have powers in our brain that are untapped and unused. But Peter actually was able to step out of the boat and take the first step on water by himself. It wasn't until he panicked and called for Jesus' help that he get rescued. But he had, A, the courage to do it, and B, he actually did it himself. And that comes from being with Jesus for about two and a half years. Now, there's not a lot of this in the Bible. You have that little story of Paul and uh, the story of, of Peter, what I just mentioned. But where's everything else? Everything else that anybody else ever did to compare it to those two acts has been removed. It's all about Jesus. Jesus was the one who turned water into wine and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And now I wonder, did he really turn the water into wine, or did he change people's perception that he turned the water into the wine? That's, that's something that's, that I'm debating right now, because he had these powers of the brain. Um, it's 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 one of these things that that you wonder what was taken out. You know, Gnosticism was a big thorn in the side for the early church. A lot of Gnostics, right? Uh, and I put the the uh, Book of Thomas in within grasp. You know, you read the Book of Thomas compared to. to uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's a completely different flavor altogether. It appears that Thomas really got some of what Jesus was trying uh, to, to teach. Um, we have these powers within us. Look at the second half of uh, John 14. We, we use the first half typically at a funeral. It says God is away now, but if Jesus goes to, to the Father, that's why he needs to leave. He was here on a visit. That's mentioned in the Assumption of Moses, which is in crossing the crevice. But if he goes to the Father, we will be able to do miracles, not only like Jesus did, but even more miracles and works greater than what Jesus did. So we have the power, but it is untapped. We are not trained to use it. And that, that, that's, that's one of the uh, truths that's been exposed to me as I continue to go down uh, this path that I'm on. Uh, you know, the, the church is all about the heart. It's all about the heart. But nothing is taught about the brain. Where do you go for brain training? You don't. You go back to seeing that you have four bars on your cell phone and what's on TV or what's the Sunday night football game. I mean, that, that's, that's where we're at. So I, I, I think that we have really fallen short. Uh, uh, some of it done by purpose with taking a lot of the Gnostics writings out. Uh, I think they were much more in tune with what Jesus was trying to teach than uh, what we give them credit for. And, of course, all the Gnostic stuff was taken out. Uh, so you've got to go searching to find it now. 
Okay, and you know, there there are some interesting uh, passages in the Book of Thomas. Some are some are really out there, Mark. Yeah, uh, I, I was just uh, looking at there is light within people of light, and they shine it upon the whole world. And uh, that's in. I don't know how you pronounce that, Logion 24, and then, uh, you know, Logion 30, there is where there are three gods, they are gods. I thought it should be talking about um, a monotheistic uh, god. So, yeah, that's... Surprise, one, surprise. Yeah, another one of those uh, it, it, it passages that you know, makes you scratch your head about, you know, what what's really going on there. Well, we are creatures of light. We, we belong to the light. Um, if anyone in the audience has ever read the... the uh, Peace to Sophia, uh, there's a description of Jesus actually turning into light. And this is, this is much more than what happened at the Transfiguration. They're very similar, but this is a much more detailed uh, uh, description uh, with, with the disciples sitting on the Mount of Olives watching Jesus literally turn into a bright dazzling light and that that's who we are we are children of the light and as evolved or experienced or dare i say have gone through as many incarnations to improve and to uh, elevate our soul as as he has. Um, Jesus is is someone to emulate. We all need to emulate him. Uh, his words are truth, and he is a creature of the light and a creature of love. And in his pure form, not half human and half God, but in his pure form, he's totally spirit. I'm convinced of that. Um, anyway, okay, so, that's what I have to say on that. <laughs> well, uh, uh, well, you uh, uh, enlisted some of your friends to provide their commentaries. Uh, they are uh, well, you have three theologians, um, you know, the military guy is uh, uh, you know, regular friend of yours. Uh, to, you know, what were you trying to achieve by um, bringing in other? Uh, perspectives uh, for this book, Mark. I love your question. That that oh. that's a profound question. 
and, and okay. a very good question. Um, I wanted to kind of start, have a starting place, an ending place, and a place to where I think we're at. And I think that I covered all those bases. The, the first interview I did was with Dr. Barry Downing, who, if your audience or if our audience does not know know this, he was the first preacher or man of the cloth who actually admitted that there were UFOs in the Bible and actually wrote a couple of books on it. And his first book was back in the 1960s. Um, I interviewed him, and of course, he, he believes that a lot of the the, the stuff that uh, you know happened in Exodus was from a UFO, and I, I, I totally agree. I brought in uh, Reverend Michael Carter, who I know that you know. Um, yep. He's an active preacher who has a congregation now, and uh, he has had a miraculous healing as well as visitations. Mm-hmm. And I find him 100% legitimate and 100% believable. And he's he, he's one of those people uh, I've gotten to know fairly well uh, that when he walks into a room, Mark, the room is four shades brighter than what it was prior to his entering. I've seen that, you know. It, it, he brings light into the room, literally. He does. Uh, uh, and I have known other people that suck light out of the, out of the room, but we won't go there. But um, <laughs> he, he, he is the real deal. And uh, I wanted to, to share with the readers uh, uh, about his healing and some of the beings that, that uh, he has encountered. Uh, I put Dr. Paul Smith in there, who was uh, an original member of Project Stargate, which some people may know was uh, a secretive program, mostly run by the CIA. It had many, many sponsors. It's been disbanded now, but those in the know know that remote viewing is real. Uh, It's legitimate. And uh, it's still being used, uh, perhaps secretively by the militaries around the world today. Paul now teaches uh, um, remote viewing, and uh, I give his references uh, uh, in the book. He's out in Utah now. His claim to fame was he actually saw what happened with the USS Stark days in advance. He saw it verbatim. He wrote it down as part of a remote viewing session. It didn't make any sense to anybody at the time, so it got put in the file cabinet uh, until after the event. Uh, they pulled it out, and what he had seen days in advance was exactly what had happened. That's just an inkling of, of what remote, remote viewing uh, does. It, it allows you to basically yourself or your spirit your entity to leave your body and to go out anywhere uh, into space, going through mass or objects to see things and uh, to perceive things and allow uh, the visions of these things to uh, uh, come into your 
being and you report what you see and write that down uh, with an interpreter and uh, that's kind of sort of in a nutshell how that works I am not a remote viewer so I'm not an expert but it's it I, w- I wanted to put that in there to show as an example of what we can do with our brains and this is just one small little aspect but it, it, it's pretty amazing that, that uh, you can go forward. Uh, it's a little fuzzy the further you go out. It makes no difference in time how far you go out. I mean, if you went from here to Mars, there's no time lag, um, that kind of thing. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there uh, that I think the reader would find uh, you know, interesting to read. Then I interviewed... <laughs> Barbara, Reverend Barbara DeLong. Of course, this is, uh, uh, I guess, technically her show. So, oh, yeah, it, it is. Ho- ho- <laughs> okay, it's her ho- show. Ho- yes, yeah, ho- hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm just like the sidekick. You know, ho- hopefully you're, you'll... I didn't know how to, uh, how to bring you in on that, Mark, your sidekick. Yes. But uh, <laughs> um, she, I tell you, a remarkable lady. I am honored to, to know her. She she is very well versed, covers a lot of different bases, and I found her to be a gem. Uh, I use that word again, a gem. Uh, we got into all kinds of, uh, of interesting things that I put in the book, including her work with uh, the Stones in, in the New England uh, area, which is one of those things that gets overlooked or, or purposely not yep. mentioned. <clears throat> well, you two had a nice discussion about her, the, her documentary, The Secrets of the Stones, mm-hmm. and your uh-huh. trip to Egypt where you did spend, uh, was it three days? At the Great Pyramid. Yeah, investigating the pyramid. So, uh, yeah, you know, I've been inside. I, I made it inside with, with a... Uh, Square, they confiscated my camera. <laughs> but uh, let me tell you, and I will tell you, it's another one of these perceived realities that, 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 that we have that, that Khufu built this pyramid, and he was a pharaoh of, of Egypt. And, uh, you know, you go there, you're taught that he built it. It was made about 2560 or so BC, plus or minus so many years, depends on who you believe. And, and, and the Egyptians had all this experience building it, and this was their crowning achievement. And that each of the pharaohs wanted to one up the other. And so, you know, they started with, you know, the, the brick pyramids and, and then you went to the pyramids, then you went to the bent pyramid, and then their crowning achievement was the great pyramid. Well, I beg to differ. I am totally convinced the great pyramid is far older than 2560 BC. I believe it could be at least 10, 12, maybe as much as 30,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I believe it was there, and the other pyramids were mere attempts to copy. 
And the best they could do was the bent pyramid. I do not believe it was the tomb of, of Khufu. If you look at the other pyramids, which were tombs, you found venerations, artifact, artifacts, hieroglyphs, all supporting the Pharaoh. None of that, none of that was found in the Great Pyramid supporting Khufu. In fact, the only statue of Khufu that's been found was hundreds of miles away. And I, I, I put a picture of what was found uh, in crossing the crevice. Uh, it's a picture of, or a statue of Khufu. It's about six inches tall. You can hold him in your hand. That's the only thing that's been found in the Great Pyramid. There's no hieroglyphs. There's no, there's no statues. There's no artifacts there to help the, the Pharaoh, uh, you know, cross over. Nothing except some red granite. Red granite signifies Hebrew in historical terms. And then you look at, at, at what the Great Pyramid is and where it's located, and you come to realize that, that this is nothing but a description of the earth put together in stone. It sits at the geographical center of the earth, the center of the earth. How did they know that? I mean, and then you get into the the lengths and the widths and the heights it all has meaning. It all connects to the earth in ways that there's no way they could have known. Absolutely no way they could have known. Um, interesting thing. In the book of Adam and Eve, another book that's left out of the Bible, by the way, the uh, uh, writers tell Noah to take the embalmed body of Adam and place it in the center of the earth. Now, if you believe literally, then you believe that somehow Noah went to the center of the earth, down to the core of the earth. But this is a place where most people don't believe literally. The center of the earth was actually the Great Pyramid. So that's where uh, Noah took the embalmed body of Adam and placed it was in the Great Pyramid. Hmm. Okay. I've never heard that one. That's well, fascinating. The, uh, as again, that's, a, that's in one of the old texts that's not in the Bible, but uh, I found it, you know, why would somebody make that up? I mean, it's not a joke. Uh, uh, somebody got that from somewhere. And the center of the earth is, is, is the Great Pyramid. It is ge- the geographical center uh, of the earth. Now, I know that you and I are both from West Virginia. You still live you still live there, but as you right. may know, Braxton County is the center, geographical center of of West Virginia. And West Virginia is shaped almost like a teapot, so it's it's hardly round or hardly square. But if you could imagine going to Braxton County and finding the pinpoint center and balancing West Virginia on a pinhead, it would be somewhere in Braxton County. I mean, and that's exactly what the Great Pyramid is with all the land masses. It's the geographical center of the earth right there. And it, it's different from the other pyramids. And then I'll, I'll let you move on to a, another topic, Mark. But it's actually, you know, it, it, it's built into the ground. It's got sockets. 
and none of the other pyramids have sockets. It is, you know, foundationally part of the part of the ground. And uh, a, people, people a lot smarter than me have said that you know there's four sides showing. And, and in the 1970s, due to satellites, we found out that the sides aren't actually straight. They're concave. And they're concave to the, to the, the degree of the exact curvature of the Earth. Now, how would the Egyptians have known that in 2560? The exact curvature of the Earth is built into the Great Pyramid on each of the sides. And it's been calculated uh, that there's 36,000 limestone, terra limestone blocks on each side. That's what covered the Great Pyramid. It appeared as a solid object. Interesting thing, on on those 36,000 limestone cap blocks, a name was written that nobody could decipher. Individual names on each of those blocks. And for the biblical fans out there in the book of Revelation, 36,000 times four, because there's four sides, is 144,000, which uh, matches the the number of the chosen ones. And each of those blocks had individual names written in a language that no one could decipher. Now, you wonder what happened to all those. Well, there were some earthquakes. To make a long story short, those were easy pickings for mosque in Cairo, and that's where most of the blocks have ended up to this day and have been reused, remolded and reused. So all that's lost to antiquity now. Well, um, and Michael's A New World, if you can take it, or uh, alien scriptures, you you can find where um, he, a quick reference to... uh, Where the world was known to be a sphere, mm-hmm. and yeah, and yeah, and you were, uh, you know, just talk, talking also about uh, God's ability to fly earlier in the show. So it's, um, you know, uh, with the navigation that was required to. I get around in spacecrafts. Um, you can see how the the alien gods uh, were able to figure out the circumference of the Earth, and well, you would have had to have been up in the air, yeah, yeah. and incorporate the like archaeoastronomy into the Great Pyramid. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, if you really wanted to, to to stretch out, there are possibly several references in the Bible that pertain to the Great Pyramid, such as where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Oh, okay. Uh, that, that's one of them. Uh, and, and it, well, I, I don't want to get off on, on that tangent, but there are you know, it depends on on how you read your Bible, the hermeneutics, uh, how how you want to interpret things. But if, if you feel that God 
built the Great Pyramid, which there's been books out there that, you know, actually uh, uh, say that, then it, it, it's been there a long, long time. And another, another point I want to make real fast, and I'll get back to your other, other question we were discussing, is that where, where the Egyptians' uh, uh, philosophy and theory falls flat for me is they use the one-up theory of how each of the pharaohs wanted to do one better than the previous one. You look at the next one right after uh, uh, Cheops or, or Khufu, and it's Yusuf, and I put a picture of, of, of what's left of his pyramid in crossing the crevice. It's basically a pile of stones. And that happened at a, a, a generally peaceful time in Egypt. And so going from one pharaoh to the next, you had the crowning achievement of the Great Pyramid with all its miraculous wonders that's still standing today to a pile of rocks. And I, I just wanted to point that out, uh, uh, where all that technology went that they supposedly had went by the wayside in a heartbeat at a time when uh, the Egyptian society was pretty much, you know, stagnant uh, with no wars or anything like that. It was a, pretty much a peaceful time. So that falls flat on it uh, on its face. And <clears throat> back, to, back to the last person I, I, I put in my book. I don't want to forget this. I, I wanted to interview several people that I did not know. Uh, I live in Virginia now, which is part of the of what's been called the Bible Belt for decades. Um, and that, that was kind of sort of hard to do. You just don't walk up to somebody and say, hey, can I interview for my book with the kind of questions I wanted to ask. But um, I found a fellow I, I bought some insurance through, and he had made a mention of, of going to church. And I asked if I could interview him for my book, and he allowed me to do so. And... As it turns out, it went pretty much like I thought it would. He he, he was uh, a, a conservative Christian, and I, I, the questions I asked and the answers he gave, I put in there uh, just to kind of sort of give insight as to where we stand today on a lot of these topics. Uh, there's no way the book could have been scientific uh, I decided not to interview the other four or five and just put one in, and it went pretty much like I thought it would go. Uh, so that that's in there. Uh, just, just to let people know pretty much where we stand today and where I used to stand, by the way. Uh, so everybody's my brother, and he's uh, everybody's my sister. Everybody's my brother. I'm not degrading anybody. Uh, uh, I've been there. So I, I, I know uh, what it's like. I, I, I know the feelings. I know the emotions. I, I know what the perceived reality is. It's just I've gone outside the the gates where everybody's taught, and you know everybody wants wants to be taught, and I have taught myself. And uh, I guess the the catalyst for that was me seeing the white tic-tac 
over my head. So this has been going on for six years now. Okay. Uh, and you know, th- since um, you know, I, I do feel obligated to um, continue with the uh, homage to Barbara since this is her network. Uh, you, know, you two do have a uh, interesting exchange about ghosts, and you also have uh, an interest in near-death experiences. Is there some kind of you know, overlap there, or you know, do you want to well, say yeah, the yeah. near-death experience for? Well, we, I can talk a little bit about it. Typically, okay. typically near-death experiences are treated as, as a subject, you know, within itself. Uh, you might find a book just on near-death experiences. There's many out there. Um, for me, it ties in with reincarnation, which I now totally believe in. Um, let me let me talk about that just real real fast. The early church actually accepted reincarnation uh, for about 200 years or so. Origen, one of the founding church fathers, who was even called the brightest mind the church ever had, had his own doctrine on reincarnation with people coming and going and you know and souls incarnating and then going back coming back and going back. Uh, and this was accepted. Um, by the time it got to Jerome around 400 uh, AD, all that had been taken out. We can't have multiple lives. We, don't, we can only have one life and we got to get it right. And we got to get it right through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ can only be found through the church. It's all about power, greed, and money, and that all played out as the centuries went by. Uh, it's really what caused the Protestant Reformation. Uh, a lot of that's in crossing the crevice as well. Reincarnation was accepted, and there's still a remnant of it in the Bible. Uh, even some preachers I've had were not aware that John the Baptist was Elijah verbatim. Jesus says that. Now, mm-hmm. you have to have you know, ears to hear, and if you have the ears, you need to hear, but if you can accept it, John the Baptist was Elijah. So Elijah ended up getting beheaded. So Elijah technically died. <laughs> so right. uh, technically. And if you believe what's in uh, uh, um Malachi, that he may come back again yet, is one of the two uh, prophets in in the book of Revelation. So he really didn't die. Uh, Of course he doesn't die. None of us die. Uh, We pass. We pass from a physical reality to a spiritual reality. And that's really what a lot of these near-death experiences uh, allude to, I've done quite a bit of study on near-death experiences. It, 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 
it all ties in with the reincarnation, uh, without a doubt. Um, Dr. Newton wrote a really good book called Journey of Souls, Michael Newton. It's his life work. He had did 29 cases of, uh, you know, past life regressions and whatnot. And every one of them support reincarnation. Every one of them live, was alive before. Every one of them had very similar stories on what happens when you die. And it, it falls right in with near-death experiences. Um, you know, when when you die, your entity, your soul, your being, exits the body. And in some cases, this can happen, you know, moments before you die because the spirit and soul knows that you're going to die. Lots of times you exit through your head and you either, if you're having a near-death experience, you're often floating above your body, but you realize you're outside your body. You, you still have sight. You still have your mind. You're still who you are and were. It's just you're in a spiritual form and not in a uh, physical vessel. Um, if you have the near-death experiences, you end up back in your body, and it's often life-changing, uh, much like what happened with me with uh, the Tic Tac. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that if you're talking about past lives, these people that have these, they they typically, not always, but typically, end up in some type of a tunnel, and they feel that they're moving. And eventually, they see a small light that seems to get bigger, and they inherently want to go towards that light. And uh, I asked Barbara some questions on this light, and I'll let her answers uh, stand for themselves in the book. Uh, let's just say we're all creatures of the light. We know that we want to be where the light is. And we seem to end up in a place where we sometimes know people, uh, know family members, and we realize that we're not alone, that we're in a place of tranquility, a place of agape, love. We call that agape here in the South, but the correct pronunciation is actually agape, uh, love that we cannot fathom. Uh, uh, we notice we're in a place of understanding, of forgiveness, and what all, all the all the attributes of God. And in every one of these 29 cases that, that uh, Newton describes, there's a guide. So apparently we all have a guide. And what this guide does is go over what happened in the life that we just experienced. And while you're in this spiritual state, time does not exist. So your spirit lives on. That's something else to consider. Um, Not to go off on a tangent, but when you're also in these crafts, moving at high rates of speed, your time is significantly slower than what transpires here on Earth. Uh, I'll put an example of that in within grasp, that uh, if you were in a craft going X amount of the speed of, of light, 
so many parsecs out into space and decide you want to turn around and come back to Earth, no one would know you. You would only be a few seconds in the craft and it would be hundreds of years here on Earth. And that plays into how some of these gods perhaps live so long. Uh, There's also accounts for that happening in some of the cultures, in in some of their histories, people leaving. You know, like uh, Methuselah. The solar solar boats uh, uh, of Egypt. uh, There's records of that in India as well, uh, of, of people going up in a craft and coming back and it being much later. Much, much later. Yeah. But that's just proving a point that we don't die. Uh, it, 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 yeah. And, and it, it uh, is um, a, a fascinating topic when, you know, the was it the kings prior to the flood uh, lived to unheard of ages? Mm-hmm. Uh, nine hundred years old, and uh, you know, people having kids in their nineties, and you know, things like that. The, the, the timekeeping was different at at that time. Um, I, I I I think it's just a fascinating subject, and it, uh, it is it, it is very fascinating. You wonder. Uh, uh, if timekeeping was different, or you mm-hmm. wonder if you you uh, you wonder if uh, if the foods they ate were more pure, you wonder if there was less radiation, you wonder about all kinds of things, uh, uh, including what was the time measurement itself even different? But, but well, well, if they could figure out um, how to engineer the Great Pyramid. I'm sure that they could figure out, okay, you know, like the year is this long, so it, you know, it's pretty, it would probably be pretty much like it is today. So well, I, I, I'm guessing it pretty much was like yeah. it is today uh, based on the the little bit of time differential that we have from mm-hmm. Joshua, you know, he's actually yeah. caused time to stop for a little bit, but uh, yeah. extend the day. But, but yeah, their, their calendars would have been uh, pretty much like ours. So how, how do you explain uh, Methuselah living to be over 900 years old? Well, I, I can't. <laughs> That's well, uh, the you, honest, you're, honest you're answer. Time, but we yeah, could theorize. Yeah, your time travel uh, idea is an explanation. That is an explanation, and and we do know that to be fact, by the way. That that is fact and not conjecture. That the faster you travel out in space, the slower time is for the person inside the craft that is traveling. That's been proven. You wonder if they were so close to God, and there again, some of the ancient texts that are not in the Bible say that the descendants of Adam were all segregated from the heathens of the earth, that this, the, the, the um, descendants of Adam going down from Adam up through Noah 
the ten generations were all segregated and lived on a mountain. And that's why they were so, um, I guess, not privileged, but so in tune with the Lord. Uh, uh, All the heathens were in the valleys, and that's where Cain had to go uh, when he murdered Abel to off to live with the heathen. So he married what what they call a heathen or, or someone that was not part of the special lineage of Adam. So you wonder if these people that lived so long during that time, you know, uh, with with Yahweh actually walking there in the garden, uh, you know, were, were they intertwined with him in ways that are not written down? I don't know. All right. I, I, I think there are some, uh, the, the ancient authors did uh, present information that's uh, is captivating. You know, or, you know, we just don't understand it. True. No, Very I, true. I think there's some neat stuff in there. You know, we we have maybe about ten minutes left. So, um, as kind of a wrap up and then you can plug your website but um do you think that your experience was very similar to the other major authors who uh you know have documented their um visitations or abductions you know there's you know Michael's uh, numerous visitations, uh, you, you know, Whitley Strieber's communion is, you know, one of the leading books on the subject, Betty and Barney Hill's mm-hmm. uh, case. Uh, you, you know, what do you, do, do you feel that, um, yeah, this is a, nor- what, where you are today is a normal response? Well, you know, it was life-changing for everybody you just mentioned. But keep in mind, I barely had uh, uh, a close encounter of the first kind. Technically, you're pushing it to even call it a close encounter of the first kind. And they had actual visitations. I have not had a visitation, at least that I know of, nor have I been uh, abducted. I hate to use that word. Let's say uh, taken on a ride on a craft, at least that I know of. Uh, just having the sight of it above me at a time that I was so involved in church and Sunday school, and and, and it, it, it still changed me. So we've all had life-changing experiences. You know, being an author was not in the cards for me at all for retirement, and. Uh, here I've spent time writing two books and uh, just explaining, uh, you know, what's happened since then for me. And uh, these other people have written books uh, uh, as well and, and shared their stories. And, you know, in the past, uh, I've always thought I had an open mind and but now I totally believe these stories. I totally believe them. So whether it's you know Barney 
and Betty Hill or or Whitley Strieber, it, it they had their experiences, and I know firsthand that Michael, uh, without I mean, it's just firsthand. Mm-hmm. So there's there's realities out there, science out there that that we just don't understand. And it doesn't mean it's from the devil. It just means we just don't understand it. Uh, it, it, it plays into the hand that what Michael has said and that I, I've also come to realize that we're all connected some way, somehow. Uh, we're all brothers and sisters of that light, that love, that spirit. All have their own paths to travel. We're all in different stages of traveling in the path. I, 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 I use the analogy of a pond and lily pads. Uh, you know, uh, I was on the previous lily pad where my Christian brothers and sisters are, uh, and I've jumped to another lily pad. Uh, so, you know. I encompass the lily pad I was on, but also encompass the lily pad I'm on now, and I realize that there's other lily pads that I can jump to uh, when I'm ready. We're all on this on a path, and we're each on our own path, and we're each, whether we acknowledge it or not, uh, have this spirit and soul inside us who who yearns for advancement, uh, yearns for knowledge, for wisdom, that loves to be nurtured and loves to be acknowledged. And and that's one of the things that, that has really changed in me, Mark, is that I now realize this, that uh, uh, my soul is, is, is yearning for knowledge and for wisdom, and, and realizes that the whole universe, and universe is, plural, is connected by love, a love that we cannot understand uh, because the amount is so great. And uh, that's kind of where I'm at now. Awesome. A, a nice way to lead into the Christmas season and some other uh, UFO shows we have coming up next I think next next week and uh, another biblical show a couple weeks a- after in like mid-December mm-hmm. but it, it um, this is like a little theme uh, and it wasn't really planned it, it's just uh, in the more and just uh, read of their books and talk with um, the upcoming guests. Uh, you know, uh, there there is an interconnectedness to a lot of the uh, the spirituality and UFO um, sightings and you know uh, phenomenon. You know these UFOs 
they don't even call them UFOs. I had a, a, a professor friend here at Liberty University, probably one of the most conservative Christian universities in existence, that, that basically told me, well, not basically, verbatim told me, we don't call those UFOs anymore. We call them crafts. <laughs> I was taken back by that. But, uh, I will forever remember that. But you know, these crafts, these visitations go back to antiquity. They just didn't mm-hmm. start in 1947. They go back to, you know, prior to prior to Christ. And there's documentations of them, but, but they just don't come into play. We, we're not alone. We've never been alone. And you have to accept the fact that everyone is God's children and the fact that we are kind of sort of far down on the totem pole when it comes to intellectual abilities and spiritual abilities and whatnot, uh, even to the point where if we don't understand something, uh, uh, it's a miracle, or if you see something you don't understand, it's from the devil, that kind of thing. We have a long, long way to go. Uh, uh, but there's hope for us. You know, if they haven't given up on us yet. Okay. Uh, well, we're, we might as well uh, wrap with that positive message. Uh, you want to give out your website real fast, and then we should be just about out of time. Sure. It's easy. It, it, it's the name of the book, Mark. It's within grasp.net. Uh, it, it gives a synopsis of what's in the book, and a little background on me. Um, and uh, hopefully it uh, would entice someone to want to read it. Just keep in mind, it's it's my journey. It's no one else's journey. It's, it, it's my journey on my path, uh, what I have found since living or leaving the confines of uh, mainstream Christianity. And uh, there's a certain sense of freedom and a certain sense of accomplishment, a certain sense of love that I have experienced that I did not experience before. And I, I do want to throw that out. Okay. Well, uh, let's let's stop there and... Uh, I just want to thank you for uh, being a great guest, and uh, you know, you'll be back next next month with Barbara, and we, we made it through the uh, storm, and we'll see everyone next week. Very good. I've enjoyed this immensely. Thank you. <laughs>